This is The Guardian. Looking for your next great podcast? We live in unprecedented times. To make sense of it, what if you could learn from some of the most influential people on the planet? The podcast Tools and Weapons is hosted by Microsoft's Vice Chair and President Brad Smith. Every week, he has a candid conversation with guests, including prime ministers and Pulitzer Prize-winning journalists. The latest episode features Bayer CEO Bill Anderson. Though most of us know Bayer for pharmaceuticals, they're also focused on crop science. They're putting digital tools in the hands of farmers to get the most out of every acre. Listen to Tools and Weapons with Brad Smith wherever you get your podcasts. Some experts are saying now that the whole world is heating up because of a global greenhouse effect. The problems unaddressed have the potential for turning the world into a form of chaos not greatly different from that produced by global war. When scientists first realized that the planet was getting hotter, they probably couldn't have ever imagined how difficult it was going to be to convince everyone. Scientific evidence remains inconclusive as to whether human activities affect the global climate. Any suggestion that Chevron is engaged in an effort to spread disinformation and mislead the public on these complex issues is simply wrong. They spent decades analysing data, working on reports and communicating that information to prove conclusively, without a shadow of doubt, the link between rising temperatures, extreme weather events and humans burning carbon. It's been a long uphill struggle. So Obama's talking about all of this with the global warming and that, and a lot of it's a hoax, it's a hoax. But finally, in the last few years, there has been a shift. It's universally accepted that we are in a climate crisis. Inevitable, irreversible, unprecedented. UN code red warning over climate change. They say we must act now to avoid catastrophe with floods, fires and droughts set to become more frequent as the world keeps getting hotter. So the impetus has moved to acting as quickly as possible to mitigate the effects. COP26 has hosted some of the climate scientists who have helped define the issue and bring this crucial understanding of our planet into the mainstream. And we got to speak to them. From The Guardian, I'm Madeleine Finlay and this is Science Weekly Daily, COP26 Day 9. What the scientists really think of progress at COP26. Last week, my colleague John Watts went to interview some of the scientists at COP who've been trying to get the world to wake up to the crisis. Catherine Hayhoe is the director of the Climate Science Centre at Texas Tech University. She was named as Time Magazine's 100 Most Influential People in 2014 and has won a lot of awards for her work communicating climate science. How long have you been a climate scientist and how would you describe the changes in public awareness 
in that time? I would say that I've been a climate scientist for too long. My goal originally was to work on climate change until we fixed it, which I naively assumed would be quite soon because it was very urgent already, even back in the 1990s. And then my plan was to go back to my original field of research, which was astrophysics. At this point, I think that when we finally fix climate change, I'll probably just open a yarn store. Um, absolutely, the discussion has changed. <laughs> Jonathan's laughing if you can't hear him. <laughs> I'm trying to restrain it. It's a great way to put it. Thank you. When you started out as a climate scientist, did you imagine that you'd be so involved in what became a political debate and that you would be having to put much more work into communication or probably as much work into communication as into the science itself? I never imagined that. I thought, as many scientists still do, that if you just tell people the facts, surely they'll understand. If you go to a physician and the physician diagnoses something that you're suffering with, you don't argue with the physician. You just say, thank you for telling me. What should I do? When I first started studying climate change, it was not politically polarized. In the United States, you could ask a Democrat and a Republican what they thought about climate change 20 years ago, and you would get the same answer. And of course, today, it's one of the most politically polarized topics in the US, in my home country of Canada, and even here in the UK, where every person from the UK who attacks me on Twitter for being a climate scientist, and when I go to their profile, they're pro-Brexit. It's part of a whole toxic stew of political issues. On a personal level, how does it feel to be in this battle? Well, who I am is not who they say I am. And I, have to, I had to make a very conscious decision not to take what they say personally. And sometimes I do, so then I just sort of talk myself down from it. I don't look at Twitter on my phone. I spend time with my family without being on social media. And I just have to recognize that their goal is to silence me. Their goal is to silence me. And if I let them do so, they've won. And so that's why I refuse. I recall when I first interviewed you, you, you put what we needed very succinctly and you said, we are waiting for the oh shit moment. When basically the point of awareness is that, oh, we can't ignore this anymore. It hits you in the face and then you've got to take that really drastic action. Are we at the oh shit moment? I think that it's building. I don't think we've quite arrived there yet, but it is building because for example, in the United States, Back in the 1980s, there was $1 billion plus dollar weather and climate disaster about every three months, back in the 1980s. Today, there is $1 billion plus dollar climate and weather disaster in the U.S. every two and a half weeks. If that doesn't focus minds, what will? Do you feel like this particular COP is one where the policymakers are listening to science? I think that they are listening to what is already happening in this world. Because, you know, 15 years ago, you had to be up in the Arctic or on a low-lying Pacific island to see the impacts of climate change. But today, no matter where anyone lives, they are already experiencing climate change loading the weather dice against us, making droughts longer and stronger, wildfires burning more area, hurricanes, cyclones and typhoons, dumping more rain, sea level rising, heat waves becoming more dangerous. Today, wherever we live, we are already seeing the impacts, and I think countries are responding to that. Others have described it to me as a war, a battle against the deniers. However you want to call it, there's, there's been, let's say, a vigorous debate. Is that debate now won? Today, people are still fighting against climate action. But they're using slightly different approaches. They're saying it's too expensive or even it's too late. And so we think, oh, good, they've moved past denying the science. 
But you have to understand, it was never about rejecting 200 years of basic physics. It was about delaying climate action. And so today, we still hear just as many objections to delaying climate action as we did 20 years ago. They've changed in the, the content of the argument, but the outcome is exactly the same. Someone else who has been at the forefront of fighting climate misinformation is Peter Stott. He leads the climate monitoring and attribution team at the Met Office and was part of the UN Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change team that won the Nobel Peace Prize in 2007. Peter explained to John how climate scepticism has evolved over the past few years. This denial has moved onto this fallacious argument that it's just too expensive to deal with climate change by reducing emissions and to making a transition in the way we do things in, in our energy, how we you know, heat our homes, etc., how we do our transport. The, the denial argument now is that that is all too expensive, much better to just deal with whatever comes our way. Well, that's not the case. The science is showing that. And also, financial experts, you know, they, they also know that, you know, if you take insurance risk, for example, they know that there's, there's mounting insurance costs and there's mounting exposure of, of the banks around the world to these risks. And they are taking this very seriously because they know that. And now I think it's about bringing the science together with the finance. And that process, I, I can see, is starting to happen. In some sense, science has now done the hardest job it was supposed to do. It's proved that there is a link. Of course, there's still other work to be done, but that was the big job. And now it's really much more the ball is in the court of policymakers. Uh, is, that, is that how you see it as well, or how, how do you see it? Um, yes, with a small but coming along. So the, the, the science has done its job in the sense of saying there is this problem, it needs a solution, and it's very, very urgent. And, and, and actually the science that's going on at the moment about linking extreme weather events to climate change is underlining that urgency. And, you know, that's important work because it's, it's really showing how urgent it is. And it's also, and this is where the small but comes in, it's also showing what those impacts are and therefore crucial information for, for people all over the world to A, to understand what's happening and B, to prepare. The process for policymakers to listen to science, I mean, that's the IPCC, basically. All the science goes through this funnel that is the IPCC and then policymakers are supposed to respond to their, 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 their uh, reports. Is, is this the best way to do it? Is this, is this, do you feel like policymakers are listening to you? Do they approach you directly? Or how is this communication going? I think it's going, going pretty well, but I think there's, there's something that needs to be acknowledged to make it go even better. It would be my assessment of this. I think the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change has done and is doing a fantastic job at assessing the science and putting it forward before policymakers. However, those reports only come along every five or six or seven years. It takes a long time for the scientists to form together. It's a lot of work. I know it myself. I've done it myself. It's a huge amount of work. Now, in the meantime, things are moving on rapidly, as we've discussed. The, the pace of change now is such that we can't have six or seven years go by with no new information. So I think what needs to happen more, but it is, it is happening, but I think we need even more of this, is the continual updates by the scientists on what is happening, 
you know, at the very least year by year. So we, we do see these assessments, but I think these need to become an even more important part of, of what we do. Finally, a big question John wanted to ask both scientists is how they feel about the future after spending years trying to predict it. Are you optimistic that Glasgow can achieve what science says needs to be achieved? I would say that I'm hopeful, where hope is the small possibility of something better. That possibility exists. Whether or not it will happen, though, is not up to the science. We have done everything we can. It is now up to people to recognize that what's at risk here is not the planet. The planet will still be orbiting the sun long after we're gone. What's at risk is quite literally us. I am marginally more optimistic now than I was at the start. We've seen some tentative indications that emissions are not going up quite as fast as as they were, and we've seen some signs that not just the governments but the financial sector, the civil society, everybody now, it feels to me, is headed towards net zero. But the anxiety remains, the anxiety that, that now let's, let's all get on with it fast. And because if we don't, if we do this too slowly, then it's not just the fact that the next, you know, the, my lifetime, however long that is, will be, will be bad enough. It's also the fact that, that the things that we're setting in store for the generations to come will be even worse. And, and sea level rise will continue. It will make low-lying island states uninhabitable. It will make the life of the generations to come so much worse. What we do over the next, just the next few years, affects just not our own lifetimes, but the lifetimes of many generations to come. And that's, that's a really important point for me, which is why I'm marginally more optimistic just in these few days. I'll have to see how the rest of the conference goes. But I remain really anxious that, that these, these good words are translated into rapid action. 1.5, still doable or not? From a scientist's point of view. From a scientific perspective, I think of the atmosphere like a swimming pool. And the amount of water in the pool is the CO2 in the atmosphere. We humans stuck a big hose into that swimming pool back at the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, and we've been turning up the water on that hose every year. So we have to turn off the water, that's cutting our emissions, but we also have to make the drain bigger. With nature-based solutions, we have a chance at 1.5 degrees but only if we work with nature and allow nature to help us. Yesterday, Carbon Action Tracker released its annual update. Calculating the impact of the future global temperature rise of recent emissions announcements. It found that, taking into account 2030 pledges alone, the global temperature increase will be at 2.4 degrees Celsius by the end of the century. By analysing what countries are actually doing, the predicted rise is even higher, standing at a catastrophic 2.7 degrees Celsius. So that's what the science says, but will the negotiators and politicians really up their game for that ultimate prize? a more stable planet for future generations. We'll continue to see over the coming days at COP26 and over the weeks and months ahead. If you're keen to hear more on COP, check out The Guardian's live-streamed event, 
with young activists from around the world fighting the climate emergency. It's on this evening, that's the 10th of November, at 8pm GMT. You can book tickets at guardian.com forward slash guardian.live. That's guardian.com forward slash guardian.live. We'll be back tomorrow. See you then. This is The Guardian. Looking for your next great podcast? We live in unprecedented times. To make sense of it, what if you could learn from some of the most influential people on the planet? The podcast Tools and Weapons is hosted by Microsoft's Vice Chair and President Brad Smith. Every week, he has a candid conversation with guests, including prime ministers and Pulitzer Prize-winning journalists. The latest episode features Bayer CEO Bill Anderson. Though most of us know Bayer for pharmaceuticals, they're also focused on crop science. They're putting digital tools in the hands of farmers to get the most out of every acre. Listen to Tools and Weapons with Brad Smith wherever you get your podcasts.